0: Welcome to Macro Peace Theater. I'm your narrator, Emil Kalinowski, and I will be reading a tale to you that was first told by Matthew Stoller, the leading proponent, the leading voice of warning regarding monopoly power in the United States. His substack, BIG, is full of unbelievable, fascinating stories of monopoly power across the United States economy and in this one we'll be looking at infrastructure will monopolies steal the infrastructure money it was posted on the 4th of October we'll be going over not just broadband power but also railroads and we'll be going back in time we'll be looking at a story from the 1930s and what lessons it may hold for us today. I hope you enjoy this very important piece. Part 1. Why does rural England have better broadband than Manhattan? A few months ago, I got a note from a reader deeply involved in broadband policy. He wanted to explain why competition, and not just investment, is a driving factor in what kinds of internet access we get. Here's what he wrote. Can you imagine living in a place where internet service can be as fast as 3 gigabits per second? There are lots of internet providers, and they compete on speed, price, and quality of service. If you lived in London, UK, or indeed in York, or rural England, or much of Europe, where the average price of an internet connection is about 20 a month cheaper than in the US, you wouldn't have to imagine. This would be your reality. But as any of your readers in the U.S. know from their own expertise, this is not the experience we have in the U.S. Why not? It's not like rural England has less capital to invest than, say, Manhattan, but it has better broadband. Why? The answer, of course, is that in the U.S., our broadband infrastructure is under the control of private monopolies like Comcast and Charter. In the UK, there's a strong regulatory system that promotes both investment in the underlying network and competition on top of it. Policymakers have understood the US has low speeds, high prices, and a lack of access for at least 10 years. Today, this discourse takes the form of a fight over an infrastructure bill, which, among other things, among other things, puts a lot of money into broadband. One would think this money would improve our broadband deployment. And yet, without more competition, here's what my contact told me what more spending could mean. If those funds are spent the way their predecessor funds have been, nearly $11 billion has been spent by the FCC's Connect America Fund Phase Two in the last five years, and a recent GAO study totals federal broadband investments from 2009 to 2017 at $47.3 billion. Most will go to large private corporations to subsidize them to build out privately owned broadband connections to rural areas, with the only requirement being that they support slow upload and download speeds. And that in a nutshell, is why it's hard to get excited or intrigued by bland talk of infrastructure. On something we understand, internet access, most of us realize it won't make a difference and tune out. In fact, it's worse than not making a difference. The money in the legislative package will go towards building infrastructure that is already outdated when it's switched on. Chapter 2. Infrastructure Week Frustrated stasis over infrastructure legislation isn't just a Biden-era dynamic. During the last administration, Trump sought to roll out an infrastructure plan and flubbed it so badly that Infrastructure Week became a running joke in D.C. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the AFL-CIO have both been asking for more infrastructure spending for decades, and sober-sounding engineering societies are always giving failing grades for American bridges and demanding a major fix. In 2007, a high-profile Minneapolis bridge collapse served as the visual reminder of the need for updating of bridges. Little seems to come of all this fretting. And yet, the framing itself obscures the actual stakes of the argument, because debating our physical plant goes far beyond thinking about how much money government should spend. What matters is political power. Not just whether we have bridges or broadband, but who gets to set pricing and access to them. Much of the infrastructure in the United States is private and controlled by unregulated firms with dominant market power. And the unregulated nature of this private infrastructure means that more money won't necessarily translate into more capacity. The story of broadband follows this trajectory. In the late 1990s, the United States led the world in both dial-up and high-speed internet connections with a competitive industry and dozens of firms who provided internet access. The U.S. had created the broadband industry and much of the technology behind it. Behind this success story was policy. Telecom networks had to lease their networks to competitors under a framework known as open access, which is still what the U.K. operates on. Open access was a common carrier rule, meaning that it was a rule designed to ensure that private citizens controlling public rights of way had to adhere to obligations to the public. Such regulatory policy is part of a tradition that dated back to the National Telegraph Act of 1866, when Congress first applied common carrier rules to private communication networks. Other common carriage obligations on telecom networks included privacy safeguards, network investment rules, price caps, and consumer protection requirements. As policy, such common carriage rules worked remarkably well. Open access meant allowing firms like AOL and CompuServe to sell directly to consumers without being blocked by incumbents like AT&T. Then came broadband. At the time, the hot technology was DSL, which piggybacked off copper wire phone lines. Cable modems were also on the horizon, as were the prospects of fiber to the home and wireless technology. In the early 2000s, however, the telecom lobby convinced the Bush administration's Federal Communications Commission to end America's 200-year successful experiment with common carriage rules. The FCC played a trick and decreed that broadband was different than traditional tele- telecommunications. In reclassifying broadband's legal status, the FCC got rid of the common carry obligations of telecom firms. Then, the Supreme Court, in a case known as Brand X, authored by Clarence Thomas, upheld this determination. Thomas has since reversed himself on the need for common carriage rules, suggesting they should be applied to firms like Google. Telecom giants cut off access of competitors to the broadband networks they controlled, and the vibrant space of broadband competitors died. Soon, other countries began overtaking the US in broadband deployment. Today, tens of millions of Americans have access to just one fairly slow network, if that. Prices increased by 19% from 2016 to 2019 and are higher in terms of average monthly cost when compared with East Asia or Europe across all technologies. Moreover, the government doesn't have a good handle on the situation because incumbents won't give the FCC very much data. The FCC's broadband maps are known to be comically inaccurate. Expensive, crappy broadband is a story of unregulated monopoly undermining the public interest. There are, however, some places in the country that avoided this fate. Chattanooga, Tennessee, built its own public fiber network and has some of the best internet access in the United States. There are dozens of towns and cities who have followed Chattanooga's example, building their own muni networks, often through a public electric utility. This movement is growing despite an increasing number of telecom-backed state laws prohibiting such public networks. But the exceptions, like Chattanooga, with observers agog at cheap high-speed service that should be the norm, reveal our sad state of affairs. The situation in the U.S. is so bad that when Google announced in 2010 that it would begin building out high-speed fiber-optic broadband of more than 1 gigabit to the home, over a thousand cities applied to the research giant, to the search giant, to ask the company to install in their communities. Hundreds of thousands of people submitted comments to the firm as well. Americans were reduced to begging a private monopoly to save them from other private monopolies on which they depended. Google mostly didn't follow through. Does the legislative text being debated by Congress alter this dynamic at all? In a word, No, it does little to challenge the dominant incumbents. Originally, Treasury recommended granting a big pot of money to cities who wanted to build fiber networks that would compete with existing incumbents, which would have spurred lower prices and higher speeds for everyone. But telecom interests balked. And in the Senate, these firms have substantial influence especially, but not entirely, within the Republican caucus. So the bill mostly shifted to subsidizing those same firms, or at least not challenging them. The the Bloomberg headline says it all. Politics. Cable fears ease as senators aim broadband subsidies to unserved. Chapter 3. The New Railroad Barons It's not just broadband. The other reason the infrastructure debate is so demoralizing is because it is so divorced from what we are experiencing as citizens and economic actors. The political debate always seems to revolve around how much money Congress wants to spend and ancillary taxes to pay for it, along with buzzwords like whether to do public-private partnerships, various green initiatives, and different financing mechanisms. Sometimes people talk about the need for high-speed rail, which would be nice. The legislation does have a bunch of money for our public passenger rail system, which is Amtrak. But the inability to ride trains, while important, is a legacy problem that policymakers want to solve because they understand it, because interest groups have rallied around it for decades, and because it doesn't require taking on power. The harder problem that is far more immediate and important is the breakdown of our supply chains and the resulting shortages. Why is this happening? There are many reasons, but a key one is that our major freight railroads, all of which are Wall Street owned, are actively disinvesting in rail yards, rolling stock, and distribution centers, cutting service on routes that are profitable, but not profitable enough? David Lynch in the Washington Post just noted, for instance, that the refusal to build more freight lines is causing delays and shortages from the giant overloaded port of Los Angeles, because there is no direct rail connection between the port and distribution centers in the Inland Empire. While advocates are pointing out that such a link would remove thousands of trucks from the road and ease port congestion, the railroads doubt the financial case. And this desire to pull out cash and slowly destroy destroy rail capacity is long-standing. Over the last six years, these firms have fired 33% of their employees So on the one hand, the government seeks to invest more, but on the other, the private actors who control the capital stock seek to disinvest. It's like two people both grabbing a steering wheel and trying to go in opposite directions. Addressing this situation requires more than just grants to rail lines and more money for Amtrak, as well as upgrades to ports. More money will help. But the government must also break the power of the railroad barons or else the cash the taxpayers put in will eventually be paid out in stock buybacks and dividends. This problem of coordination and investment is well known in the industry. As one executive put it at an industry conference on the failure of the various transportation industries to take on the supply chain crisis. Without fear of regulation, I don't know what will motivate all stakeholders to be at the table. The legislation on deck doesn't do anything on this front. In fact, while the railroads are fighting the Biden executive order on competition, their trade association has heartily endorsed the infrastructure bill. They'll take the cash. Thank you very much. Chapter 4 the good news. Not all is lost. In fact, what I'm really criticizing is not so much this legislation, but the very idea of discussing infrastructure without any reference to the power dynamics involved. How to expand the physical plant has always been contested. In 1932, as historian Eric Rauchway points out in Winter War, A major point of contention between Herbert Hoover and Franklin Delano Roosevelt was over infrastructure. In particular, the massive and public hydroelectric resource at Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and by extension, the Tennessee River Valley. Herbert Hoover wanted to sell off Muscle Shoals and tried convincing Henry Ford to buy and run it. FDR, spurred by southern populists, sought to have government publicly develop and own the electric generation because the private utilities tended to shut out the rural region from access to the grid. Roosevelt's most bitter enemies were the utility magnates who tried to stop him from winning the Democratic nomination in 1932 and eventually put up one of their own executives, Wendell Willkie to run against him. Roosevelt won his bout with Hoover and created the Tennessee Valley Authority, which provided cheap electricity, flood control, fertilizer manufacturing, and jobs across seven, then poor, southern states. The TVA facilitated the industrial expansion of the South over the next two decades, equalizing the wealth of the region with the rest of the country for the first time since the Civil War. At the same time, all over the country, the government in the 1930s helped finance the creation of electric cooperatives to serve rural areas where the private and now regulated utilities wouldn't. And the government also broke the power of private utilities with the Public Utility Holding Act, 1935 which broke up utility systems that stretched across state lines this integrated investment competition and regulatory approach ended up creating a cheap and universal electric grid with a mix of public and private ownership that battle was about political power explicitly today competition and concentrated power are not taking center stage in congressional deliberations over infrastructure, even though they should be. That said, our politics on competition policy is trending in the right direction. The Trump administration encouraged competition in vaccine production, and it worked spectacularly well. Biden has signed an executive order that could meaningfully attack concentrations of power across the economy. And in some of the related legislation under debate, there is a provision to cap pharmaceutical prices and address some of the anti-competitive rebating practices driving up pharmaceutical costs. The energy of the antitrust movement is impacting broader discourse, and it will only get stronger over time. Moreover, there's already a bunch of useful spending going on around broadband. It's just not in the infrastructure bill. In early 2021, the first major piece of legislation passed in the Biden area was the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. That's the one with the tens of millions of checks for ordinary Americans. That bill included $10 billion for local governments to carry out critical capital projects. Treasury recently gave guidance making sure that they can actually finance real, high-speed broadband and can even compete with the incumbents. Had we been doing this kind of project, the entire country would have gigabit internet, internet service for far less than the money we've wasted over the years, my contacts suggested exactly what Treasury did, which is to allow cities to build out capacity to compete with private monopolists. They can even lease it out to anyone who wants to compete, much like the original open access regime that worked so well. One of the reasons, in fact, that senators in this new package were so adamant about ensuring that new money couldn't go for building broadband to compete with slothful incumbents is because the telecom firms got burned in this original aid package. Cities all over the country are beginning to use this money to plan broadband projects that are somewhat similar to what Chattanooga did. So that's good. The question today, as it was with railroads and the TVA, is simple. Who governs. Is it we, the people, or is it what Franklin Delano Roosevelt once called the informal economic government of the United States, or what today he might call Comcast? That has always been the question when it comes to infrastructure. That's why it's so hard to get this stuff through Congress and to talk about it coherently because that physical stuff paid for by our money should belong to all of us. But the technocrats and the oligarchs find such a reasonable arrangement utterly outrageous. Monopoly power, it comes up regularly during depressions. Two previous worldwide depressions that I'm aware of, the long depression in the late 19th century And what did it coincide with? Important antitrust legislation. I'm thinking specifically of the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. Then, as Mr. Stoller informed us, during the Great Depression, the 20th century's depression, also battles against monopoly power. And then now, during our silent depression in place since 2007, here we go again. The war is not as far advanced. It's only percolating. We're only exploring the edges. Congress is sort of ruffling their feathers a little bit sometimes in some areas, but there hasn't been a wholesale confrontation as we've seen in our last two worldwide depressions. An important topic, and you can learn more about it at least twice a month or so from Matt Stoller at his Substack, .substack mattstoller.substack.com. It's called Big. That's what the name of his substack is. And recently he announced that he will be expanding his offering to paying subscribers. So, if you want to visit the site for free, you get two to four posts a month. If you want to participate more, you will be able to participate in online uh, talks. You'll be able to get articles that are released to you first. You'll be able to ask questions of Matt. So, fantastic offer there. If you want to get even more, check out Mr. Stoller's book, Goliath, post uh, published in 2019. And then, of course, at Twitter. On Twitter, I mean, at Matthew Stoller. All right, important topic that's not going away anytime soon. I hope you enjoyed it, and I will talk to you again soon.